take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, our third installment of Paul's defense of his faith, defense of his calling, and the defense of the gospel. He completes in these next several verses in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Before we move any further, I would tell you that this is kind of a two-part message, and you're going to need to hang on to these truths because it won't be until January that we pick it up again because of the holiday season. But as Paul begins or finishes telling his personal story, he's laid the groundwork and the foundation for everything that he will say now about the gospel and his theological teaching and explanation of the gospel that was entrusted to him. He will deal with the, the changes in the gospel. He will deal with the false gospel. He will deal with the only gospel. And everything in between as he reflects on the gospel of Jesus Christ that is rooted and grounded in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, for the glory of God alone. Sometimes we have this false understanding of, of worship, that, that worship is given to us to rev us up and to get us in the right mood to celebrate. And sometimes in a worship set like we did this morning, some people think, well, that's kind of a dearth, a little downer. Why was it so somber? But it matches the text today. Because if you don't really spend time seriously reflecting on grace alone, It can change how you live. It can lead you down to a, a, a road of confusion, and it can lull you into thinking that somehow you helped God through this process. To seriously reflect upon grace, grace demands a sober kind of reflection. What does it mean that God did this, and I did nothing, 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 and I deserve none of this. What are the implications for that? Sometimes we, we look at the opposite side of salvation. We fail to reflect upon the depth of the grace of God, the very cornerstone of our faith. By our worship, we want to draw you into this text and into the reality of we don't spend enough time reminding ourselves that God did this. When you were dead when you were wandering, when you weren't looking for Him, God, in a glorious fashion, found you. And by His grace, He saved you. And through that grace, He will keep you. And by that grace, you will stand before the throne someday. That's serious. We have to guard against losing our perspective on that. We must understand the sober reality of that kind of redemption. And in our singing, keep our commitment that with every breath we long to follow Jesus. With a reminder, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Reminds us, at the end of the day, that it is all by grace. Now, that can bring a celebration, and we will do that next week. 
Before the celebration, though, comes a time of sober reflection. And when we truly grasp what he has done, all of it resounds to his praise and to his honor and to his glory forever and forever and forever. And God's people said, amen. So that's where we are today. A sober reflection through a sobering encounter that Paul has with the apostle Peter. Sobering indeed. Pray with me, please. Father, we would ask that you might bless us again as we contemplate and consider, and as your Spirit teaches us about the glorious grace of God in Christ Jesus that leads us to serious worship and celebration, knowing that in spite of us being able to do nothing, Christ has done it all for the glory of God alone. As we wrestle with this text, there is so much here. We'll return to it after the first of the year, but at least lay the groundwork for the important principles contained in this text that, that allow us to have this time of sober reflection on Your grace. And again, through the ministry of Your Spirit, give us clarity and understanding of what Paul is saying in his defense of the faith, his faith, his apostleship, and his message. May you call us to contend for that same kind of faith, delivered once and for all, for all of the saints, to the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been following along with us in this study, Paul, in the beginning, talks about that grace and peace that comes by God alone, and he shares his personal story of intervening grace, and we went to the book of Acts in several different chapters to hear the testimony of Paul that is consistent. And the consistent testimony of Paul is always this, I was trying to undo God and His Son, Jesus Christ. I wasn't looking for Him in any way. I was on a road to Damascus, and God said, Paul, stop for a minute and let me introduce myself. That's a glorious message. And as we looked at the story of God's intervening grace in Paul's life, and now compare that to the message of the Galatians, he is fearful that they have forgotten that God did that. They didn't do that, and there's nothing they can do to keep that. And it was so personal to him that he writes, juxtaposes his gospel against those individuals called the Judaizers. And these Judaizers were so-called Jewish Christians who are demanding that all Gentiles who come to Christ obey the law. In fact, they were teaching, and we learned this from Acts chapter 15, we looked at it last week, the Jerusalem Council, that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. God didn't do this, you have to help Him. You have to be saved. There's something that you have to do in this process. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, these Judaizers, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. What is the gospel? This is the gospel that we preach. Are we in the same place? So these Judaizers had drifted from Jerusalem now they'd come to these churches of Galatia, and they were trying to undo Paul's gospel and say, no, it's important. It's important that you have faith, but it's equally important that you have works, so you cannot truly be a Christian. 
You cannot be saved. You can't be forgiven unless you obey the law, particularly circumcision. Now, you can imagine Paul's reaction and response to that. And it's vehement. Because if indeed we add your works to God's salvation, three things happen. Number one, we rob God of His glory. And only God should get the glory for your salvation because He did that. Number two, we minimize the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In essence, you're saying, if I have to do something, what Jesus did was not enough, God will say through Paul in this passage. God forbid what he did was more than enough. I can't do anything. But even worse, to add works to this plan and gospel of salvation leaves you still dead in your sins because there's nothing you can do. It is only by the grace of God. So, it sets us up for this notion, and it was passed on in the Jerusalem council, that they, these disciples, these apostles, agreed with Paul that his gospel was in grace alone. You didn't have to be circumcised. You didn't have to keep the law. They were preaching the same gospel. But you have to understand in the book of Acts, there is this mingling of, of Gentiles and Jews in the family of God. The message now that God had given in the Old Testament to His, to His people, the Jews, was now offered and afforded to Gentiles. And Jews and Gentiles lived seriously separated kind of lives. They, they just lived differently. And now they're joined together in the grace of God in Christ alone. And there were some tensions because the Jews believed that this is how you were supposed to live. God told us that. And the Gentiles believed, well, well, God has saved us by His grace, not by the law over here. And there was a potential for real strife and division in the church. One of the reasons for that council was to kind of eliminate that tension and to, to make everybody known, both, both Jew and Gentile alike, that this is in Christ alone. And as they make or come to this conclusion, there is this matter of unity. So listen carefully. Christ is the only source of our salvation, and it is by grace and through faith alone. Nothing needed, no circumcision, no works. Jesus paid it all. Thankful for that, aren't you? But we're all different, and we come from a lot of different walks of life. And when you throw all these different people into the mix, there's personal tension. And God wants to maintain unity in His church. So Peter, the apostle to the Jews, and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, needed to be on the same page so that when God saved Jews and Gentiles in a particular place, they would get along. So in this Jerusalem council, they remind Paul and Barnabas, as they take this letter back with them, that in order to keep the unity of the church, not to maintain salvation, they were to keep from things polluted by idols and sexual immorality and, and from blood, so that God could bring unity between the Jews and the Gentiles under the name of Jesus Christ alone. You follow me? So when he gives these instructions for these Gentile believers not to do this, it's not for salvation. 
It's to maintain a unity of, of, of peace in the church, particularly where Paul came from, and that was Antioch. Antioch was the mother city, if you would, of Rome. It was a crossroads, and many Gentiles got saved in Antioch, and many Jews got saved in Antioch, and they were going to be the model church as to how do Jews and Gentiles who live totally separate lives, now saved by the grace of God alone, live together. They were going to be the model of that, and they must defend the integrity of the church in Christ alone with not offending each other along the way. That's, that's solely the reason for this instruction. It is not an add-on to the gospel. But in that simple point, in that Jerusalem council, there have been dire conclusions brought by evangelicalism through the centuries. Some teaching an antinomianism or a, a no-law, anti-law, teaching that 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 God's grace is gospel-centered, and in a gospel-only theology, the only thing that matters is the gospel, and you believing the gospel that has no implications in how you live your life. That's not what Paul's teaching. It's not what he's teaching at all. It does have implications in how you live your life, and he'll spell that out through the rest of this text. But let us simply remind ourselves this morning that Jesus Himself said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If by grace you're saved, and I've loved you and you have loved me, then this is what I expect of you. There are certain things that are required for salvation. No, they're post-salvation life. We'll, We'll talk about it again as we move through all of the text of Galatians, and and even a little bit today. One of the things you need to understand is that legalism adding to this gospel confuses how we're saved and how we live. But antinomianism divorces how we're saved from how we live, and both of those are false gospels. If you don't grasp all of that, we'll get into it deeper as we move along, but it's, it's really important. Today, in grace, we are called to obedience. Not to legalism, but to obedience. But that lack of obedience has dire effects in the evangelical gospel and even in the presentation of the gospel. We'll look at that. And in particular, uh, in the ABF that follows in the chapel, we're going to look at what we will call or what has been called functional liberalism. When you divorce your faith from how you live, you're in danger of conflating and confusing the gospel. We're specifically going to look at the events with Andy Stanley and much of this LGBTQ plus revolution today and ask ourselves, what does our faith mean in the midst of all of that? And how can we maintain the purity of the gospel? I don't mean to belabor that. The truth is, if you are truly saved through the grace of God in Christ alone, by faith alone, for the glory of God alone, how you live matters to God. It matters. It matters. As we reflect upon that, we are introduced to this narrative in verse 11 of an incident that takes place between Peter or Cephas and Paul, verse 11. Galatians 2.11 says, but when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter coming to see how the Jews and the Gentiles were blending together in Christ's church through grace alone, by faith alone, 
in Christ alone, as he was there looking at this seeming laboratory for Gentile-Jewish relations within the body of Christ, Paul finds something that he doesn't like about Peter, and he opposes him to his face. He challenges him to his face in front of a great company of people. And that makes us all a little uneasy, particularly in our culture today, right? You live by this notion that nobody has any business poking into my life. And I want to show you from the Scripture that's just not true. Because if you claim the name of Christ, you claim an accountability to that Christ. And in this incident, Peter was betraying the very things that Paul and Peter proclaimed to teach. And Paul being Paul says, yeah, I don't. I'm not going to have any of that, Peter. So in front of everybody, he opposes him because Peter stood condemned. Whoa, whoa, that's serious language. What is he condemning in Peter? Some would teach us that this was never resolved, and from that day forward, Peter and the Jewish church and Peter and the Gentile church never mingled. That's simply not true. You look through the Scriptures. They were blended together, that there was no Jew or Greek or male nor free, uh, female, uh, you know, slave or, or free. They're all under the grace of Jesus Christ alone. So, so Paul's a little angry right now, righteously so. There are some who want to dismiss this text, and Paul was out of line, and he shouldn't have, shouldn't have done what he did, no, no, this matters. And it matters for a couple of different reasons. Verse 12. So Paul makes this statement that he, he withstood Peter or posed him to his face. And then in verse 12, he gives us the reason. 12 and on. Before certain men came from James, before certain men traveled from James, not with his authority, not from the authority of the church at Jerusalem, they came from Jerusalem, simply what that means. And they're now in Antioch. Peter's there as well. For before certain men came from James, from Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was sitting down in their homes. He was fellowshipping with them. And that fellowship was rooted in what? Christ alone. They were the same because of what Christ had done. The Old Testament ceremonial and Jewish law said that they could not sit down with Gentiles. Those Gentiles might defile them. The meal might defile them. There were clear rules and instructions that that wasn't to be. But Paul has preached that those things are gone away. You're now saved by grace. You don't have to keep that law anymore. And in the Jerusalem council, we see that Peter agrees with that. So he's sitting down in Antioch with this church filled with Gentiles and Jewish believers. But when these certain men came from Jerusalem... Peter drew back and separated himself from those Gentile believers, fearing the circumcision party. The language is that gradually he pulled away from all the believers in the church in Antioch and only spending time with the Jewish believers in Antioch, implying implying that the Gentile believers were less than. And the Jewish believers were the, were the true believers. Now, you can imagine how this gets Paul a little bit riled up. I do find it interesting that this is the first example of cancel culture and virtue signaling right, right, right here in this text, <laughs> right? Peter's afraid of these guys. 
Peter's afraid that they're going to make fun of him. Peter's afraid that, 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 that maybe somehow they're going to tarnish his reputation. He's afraid that they will ridicule him, malign, and accuse him of, of eating with the Gentiles. And God forbid, you can't, you, you can't do that. So he, so he starts to change his behavior because of these cancel culture Judaizers, and he withdraws from the Gentile believers, and it's almost virtue signaling to these Judaizers, say, yeah, yeah, I'm with you too. I'm with you too. This is a dearth in our culture today, and it's been a problem in Christianity from the get-go. And whoever is ashamed before Christ and men, Christ will be ashamed as well. We have to stop running from people. We have to tell the truth. We have to boldly proclaim and contend for the faith. And that's what Paul's trying to do here. Peter, fearful of what they're going to say about him, tries to withdraw a little bit. And Peter's actions had a significant impact on the church there. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews, these so-called Jewish believers acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led away. Even Barnabas led astray by their hypocrisy. These Jewish Christians, the churches of Galatia are now confused. So, so is God bringing Jew and Gentile together under Christ, or isn't He? Is our faith better than theirs because we keep the law, and theirs is less than ours because they don't? And when this leader, this apostle to, to the Jews, muddies the waters, these young Christians in Antioch are led in the wrong direction, and they now start to separate themselves from the Jewish believers, and now we have a split in the church at Antioch. God's never happy about that. As Peter and Paul address this whole thing, he calls Peter and his behavior hypocrisy, and he names Barnabas, and that's sobering. This is the same Barnabas that went with Paul to the Jerusalem Council to present a gospel that was in Christ alone, no circumcision, no law. And Barnabas, who was so sure with Paul that that was the gospel given to them, to the Gentiles, is now hedging his bets a little bit. Two leaders hedging their bets and causing grave confusion in the church. Paul condemns their behavior, calls out Barnabas for his hypocrisy. and says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said before Cephas, Peter, and all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. It's important for us to understand that right doctrine without right behavior always produces hypocrisy. So if you say you believe this, the implications are for this and this and this. 
But if you divorce your faith and the truth of the gospel from all of your behaviors, there is hypocrisy that reigns, and that's the evangelical church today. We live in a state of cognitive dissonance by believing in the absolute truth of the gospel and divorcing that by the way we live our life in front of the unbelieving populace. And Paul says it can't happen that way. Your faith changes how you live. Again, we're going to tackle that big issue in the ABF after our worship. Peter simply says, your conduct, Peter, has led away Barnabas and these believing Jews because it is out of step or not in step with the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is straightforward. Salvation is in Christ alone. You do not need to be circumcised, and you do not need to follow the law. Now, some would say, well, this was before Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council where Peter agreed with that, but there's a flaw in that logic, even if it was, because in Acts chapter 10, Peter is called in a vision to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile devout man, and Peter is up on a rooftop, and he sees this vision, and this vision is with a sheet with all kinds of animals, According to the Mosaic law, some clean animals and some unclean. Some he should eat and some he shouldn't. And that, that sheet comes down, and God says to Peter, take and eat. And Peter says, no way. Can't, can't do that. Some of these animals are not clean. It's against the law. And God says to Peter, that's my point. It's not against the law. You're not rescued by law. You're rescued by grace. I am giving and providing my grace to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. That's what this vision was. The messengers come from Cornelius to take Peter back. Peter tells them of his vision. Peter shares with them the clear plan of salvation. By the way, you know what that plan included? Faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone. Not once does he mention circumcision in the law when he goes to the house of Cornelius. Why? Because the law had died. It was now grace and God alone. He gives them the gospel of grace alone. Cornelius and his house come to know Christ the Savior. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. He baptizes them, and he acknowledges that although Gentile not circumcised, Although Gentile not keeping the law, they are in Christ through grace alone. Great story, right? Peter's acting against his conscience. He knows better. He knew it personally through a revelation from God. He knew it corporately from the Jerusalem council. And cowardly now, he is changing his behavior and confusing the gospel. And Paul says, I'll have none of it. If you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile... What does that mean? You live like a Gentile, not following the ceremonial law, eating in their homes, eating all manners of meat. If if it's no longer required of you, Peter, if you as a Jew are living like a Gentile, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, this makes no sense. Can you feel the tension in the room when this is going on? These are giants in the faith. Imagine what's going on in the minds of all of these other Jewish believers who are surrounding Peter. 
Barnabas and those who had withdrawn. This goes against our Western sensibilities. Well, he should have taken them aside privately and talked to him. I don't know why he would do such a thing like that, call them out in front of everybody. Then you don't understand Scripture. In Matthew chapter 18, we're given a command for how to resolve offense and even sin with another believer. You'd go one-on-one, right? Paul didn't do that. If you don't make any progress and resolve the issue in the relationship, you, you take a another person with you, right? And if it's a sin issue, and there's resistance to correcting it by one and two witnesses, then, then you take it to the church and it becomes a, a church discipline matter. Why didn't Paul follow that? Because we learn in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that when it comes to leadership and elders, there's a different pattern entirely. And the pattern goes like this. Nobody is permitted to bring an accusation, a charge of sin against an elder in the presence of all, unless there are two or three witnesses as to what that person did to substantiate the charge. Did Paul need witnesses? He had them, the Jerusalem council. He had them, the vision of Peter. He had them, Barnabas. He had them, Cephas. He had them, Jewish Christians. This is out in the open. And what that text in 1 Timothy 5 teaches us is if the accusation is found to be true through the witnesses, then you must hold that leader accountable for their actions. And that's exactly what Paul does. It was absolutely in keeping with the Scripture. Peter, you are wrong. It is clear. Everybody knows it. I hold you to account. That is biblical. I believe implied in this text, though, is when someone makes a charge against an elder claiming witnesses and there are no witnesses that substantiate the charge, then that person is held publicly accountable as well. Otherwise, you can make charges all day long at God's people and never be held accountable. Oh, welcome to the modern church. Happens every day. Happens every Sunday, doesn't it? Peter is doing in leadership what God's called him to do, and he holds him to account. Peter, what you were doing before they got here is not the same thing you're doing after they got here. You can't do that. And I have to wonder if Peter's mind goes right back to Acts chapter 10 in this vision. And Peter says, oh boy, I know better. I know better. It doesn't give us the outcome of this, but it does tell us in Peter's epistles, that he recognized that the apostleship and authority in the gospel of Paul. Somehow they resolved this whole matter as painful as it was. He says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews, Peter, by birth and not Gentile sinners. We have a heritage and we have a law We have a special place in the eyes and the mind of God. As ethnic Jews, we are different than the Gentiles and how we were called to conduct ourselves and live our lives. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now God has brought us to the place where that ethnicity doesn't get us into heaven. Only the grace of God in Jesus Christ gets us into heaven. Peter affirmed that. And because he did, Paul goes on to say to him that in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, giving that very gospel that we've been proclaiming, because by works of the law, no one is justified. The law is to point out that you cannot be declared righteous because you're incapable of doing everything that the law tells you to do. But here's the good news. Jesus came to overcome that law. He lived a perfect life, and by faith, you are saved by grace. That works. But grace, Peter, you know the gospel. We preach the gospel. Romans reminds us. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth might be stopped. The law shows us how desperately sinful we are. Reminds us that the whole world will be held accountable to God for that sin. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law tells us that we are in bad shape, and only Jesus Christ can help. That is the essence of the gospel. So he says, you're undoing everything that you say to be true. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? So, if indeed Christ has called us away from that law and offered us freely His grace in Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone, and we have to go back to the law, is God guilty of deceiving us? Is, is, is this gospel of Jesus deceptive? Paul is a master at this rhetorical question. And he answers his own question, God forbid. Peter, are you going to say that what Christ did on the cross was not enough? Is that what you're saying? I can imagine the shudder in Peter. No, God forbid. And Paul answers for him, in no way, in no way is Christ's sacrifice insufficient. In no way, shape, or form is it not enough. Peter, you know, you know this. You know this. Paul continues to speak to the crowd and to Peter. And to address this, he focuses on the justification of God in Christ alone. And justification is that aspect of the application of redemption being purchased by God in which God legally declares the sinner to be righteous in His sight. God looks at us, and the law says we're guilty. But when God looks at us in Jesus Christ, He gives the verdict not guilty because of what Jesus Christ has done. You see, see the difference there? So, Peter, you, you're confusing people. Is it in the law or is it in Christ alone? What, what, what's it, you can't have it both ways. Peter, right doctrine. It's got to lead to right behavior. But Peter, if we rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself a transgressor. If I, if I, if I go back to that law and say that I have to keep the law 
in order to be saved, the only thing that law does is condemn me as a sinner. That's the only thing it does. It takes me right back where I started. So, Peter, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been released from the bondage of that authority that pointed out my sin. I've been rescued with the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And now my life that has been redeemed, purchased, now my life that has been rescued from my sin, now the forgiveness that I have in Christ alone, it is that that determines my life going forward so that I might live to God. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ died on that cross of Calvary, he paid the penalty for our sin, and the price was paid in full, and Jesus said it was finished, and God was satisfied with that, with that sacrifice. It was done. God did that. And when we were in Christ, remember this whole process of imputation? God took our sin away from us and put it on Jesus, and He paid it in full. And in our union with Christ, we will never again answer for our sin. Praise be to God. It is covered under the blood. But in that imputation, Christ took His perfect life of obedience and clothed us in that robe of righteousness. Not that we're perfect, but we were sinless, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God is considering us righteous because of what He did in His, His absolute perfect keeping of the law. And if that be true, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I that live. I've given up my life for this Christ. It is now Christ and His righteousness that live in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith and faith alone. And the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Peter, if you understand what God has done, it changes everything and your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. It is the precious blood of Jesus Christ that has cleansed you from all your sin. It has called you to a life of righteousness. And although you can't achieve that all by yourself, you can achieve it in Christ alone. Listen carefully. The grace that saves you is the grace that keeps you. What do I mean by that? There's nothing you can do after salvation outside of God's grace, the sustaining grace that helps you to be obedient, the sustaining grace that assists you in worship, the sustaining grace that conforms you to the image of Christ. You don't do anything in your sanctification. God does it by grace alone. We have to be really careful that we don't add legalism after the fact. that we're reminded of Jesus' words of the vine and the branches, without Him I can do nothing. Let me tell you something. I get nervous every time I come up here to open up the book because I am so, so unworthy. But God's grace takes over. And He uses vessels of obedience to preach and teach the truth for His glory 
alone. This is not my gospel. It is the gospel according to Jesus Christ, and I couldn't preach it without that divine grace. And if you want a perfect example, you know I've struggled with my voice. And I get up here, and I open the book, and God takes care of the voice. You know what that is? It's grace. There's nothing you do for the glory of God that is not by grace. Isn't that glorious? God's working. He's working in my life for the same grace that He saved me in. Therefore, my life must be lived in Christ alone through the faith of the Son to the place of obedience. Why obedience? Because this Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. He bought me with His own precious blood, and that is enough, so He says. Am I then to nullify the grace of God? For if righteousness were through the law, Peter, then Christ died for no purpose. Are you thankful that He didn't die for no purpose? Here's His purpose, to rescue you from your sin, to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ, to conform you to the image of Christ, until you stand in the presence of Christ, to the glory of God alone. You see how that works? It is grace that leads us all the way home, and without grace, we would never end at the finish line. Only God does that. He keeps us by His grace. What is our role then, Pastor Jim? The exercise of faith, the kind of faith that produces works, according to James in his epistle, for faith without works is dead. That's what Paul's saying. So, things change. The moment you come to know Christ as Savior, your life isn't yours anymore. You live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. For me to live is Christ, is Christ. That's the message to Peter, and it resonated because God continued to bless the church at Antioch, and He continued to bless the growth of the church in the book of Acts, and He continued to reveal that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen and amen. We've got to get the gospel right. So, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and none of it is your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not because of your works, you have nothing to boast about. But when that grace of God invades your life, you are now His. You are created in Christ Jesus, and you were called to righteous living. That's exactly the message of Paul as he confronts Peter in a biblical fashion for the sake of the gospel. May, may we understand that and make application in a world that is seeking to nullify the grace of God and make this about us. It's never been and never will be about you. It is all for the glory of God alone. Sober reflection, Father. Sobering realities. Deep implications to this genuine faith that change everything. May we not be the one who nullifies your grace by trusting in anything other. And in trusting you alone, may that grace have living implications as you teach us that we live by faith to the glory of God 
until we see him. Even so, come Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us? We're going to...